Well, good morning, Westmount. And it's good to see each and everyone out this morning. And I'm just getting a proper glimpse of what's transpiring above there. And we just give God thanks for His grace and His goodness. And it's a sign of His blessing towards His church and a sign of a church that stands firm on the Word of God. I'll invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2 as we continue in our worship and continue in this study in 1 John and we make our way to verse 7 through to verse 17. Now, just to warn you, I'm noticing that the clock is 10 after 10, so (laughs) brace yourselves. (laughs) Anyways, no, I will. I'm aware that it's, it hasn't followed the protocol of falling or springing forward, so no worries there. In an anecdote from Moody, it says, Show me a church where there is love, and I will show you a church that is a power in the community in which it is. In Chicago, the story is told a few years ago of a little boy who attended Sunday school. When his parents, parents moved to another part of the city, this Little fellow still attended that same Sunday school, although it meant for him a long, tiresome walk both ways. So a friend came up to him and asked him, Why journey so far to this church? There are plenty of churches in close proximity that you can attend and experience good preaching, good teaching. Why go this far? Why go through all that tiresome walk each week? The guy replied, the little boy replied, they may be good for others, but not for me. Why? Why not? Why aren't these churches good enough for you? The friend asked. Because they love a fellow over there. That was his response. He goes, he walks, he makes this tiresome trip each Sunday because of the love that he experienced from the church that he is attending. If only we could make the world in which we live believe that we love, we actually love each other, that we actually love one another, that we actually love the world in which we live, the people in the world in which we live, to be precise there would be fewer empty churches and a smaller portion of our population, our cities, our neighborhoods who have never darkened the door, the church, through a church door. Let love replace, as the anecdote ends, let love replace duty in our relation, in our church relation. And let the world, and the world rather, will soon be evangelized. In this section that we are going to look at, and I'll read a few verses afterwards, 
But John opens this section with the term beloved. Beloved. Agapetos, the Greek word. A term that indicates this relationship that John has, an intimate relationship that he has with these brother, the readers or the recipients of this letter or these letters. He's showing the affection that he has for them. He's genuinely, he genuinely loves them. And we saw a glimpse of this earlier when he refers to them as my little children. So following his personal address that we saw in chapter 1 and what we looked at earlier in chapter 2, John now continues to expound the condition for Christian fellowship by citing the greatest commandments and the greatest commandment in which all the others dwell. All the other commandments rest on this singular commandment. And in chapter 2, the earlier verses, especially verses 3 and 4, you will note he uses commandments, plural. But if you notice, there's a shift from commandments, plural, to commandment, singular. Just bear that in mind as we make our way through this text. So the entire subsection of deals with love for one another. It's a command to love one another, and it's a subject that he's going to come back to again as he does so often through this letter. He comes back to these things as a refresher course to remind the readers, that, hey, I've told you this before and I'm going to say it again. But now he's wanting us, he's compelling us, and he's compelling the brothers and sisters in the church that is supposedly, again, in Asia mind, that they are to love one another. And he makes it clear that this love is new, but it's not new. And we'll get more into detail with that. It's new, but it's not new. A word that is used, there are two words that are used for new in the New Testament. One is neos, which means new in time. So it has never existed before. And then there's the other word, koinos, which is new in kind. Which means there might just an addition to, and again we'll get more into this. But John is using, the word that John uses here is Koinos, which is new in kind, not new in time. Hence why he says new, but not new. Love, we are told in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Jason, will, I know, will give you a fuller exposition of this text. But love, Paul reminds us, is the fulfillment of the law, according to Romans 13. Verses 8 to 10. The readers have known this. They have known this from the beginning of time. John has shown them that keeping God's commandment is this test of true knowledge. So if you want to show people that you truly know God, then you will keep his commandments. Verse 7. If you turn there... And we read a few verses together. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have that you had from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. God, may you use your words to penetrate our hard hearts, our sinful hearts, and turn them into the hearts that are that of like our son, your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. God, may you use these words to convict the lives of the believers, Lord. And if there's any one here this afternoon or this morning who has not yet accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, may the power of the gospel, may the power of your words, not mine, Lord, but your word, the power of your spirit convict their hearts and make them fall to the knee in surrender to Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us who are struggling in our walk, in our faith, and maybe there are those here who put on a facade and a show of love, but in, in our hearts we're harboring bitterness and hate and envy and strife for one another. God, may your word convict us. May your word convict them and bring them into full surrender to you in confession. Lord, may your word transform the lives of each individual here, including myself, and may no one walk out these doors the same way in which they came. Take these words, Father God, and use them for your glory and for your honor, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So the readers have known this from the beginning, this new but old love that John is referring to. So now we're going to look or have a closer look, take a closer look of this new in kind, not new in time, but new in kind love that John is talking about. And the first thing I want to highlight is that John through the power of the Holy Spirit, is commanding the readers to love the brothers in Christ, to love those who are in Christ, to love one another, however you want to phrase it, however you want to put it. Love the brothers in Christ. Love one another. John emphasizes the practice to love by way of repetition. He wants them to get it, so he keeps repeating it. And the word commandments occurs four times in these verses, verses 7 to 11. Four times. In John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment. What is this? That you love one another. That you love one another. So clearly, 
This isn't the only commandment. This isn't the only portion or part in Scripture where this command is exhibited or shown. But this is, goes along with the love that God expects us to have for one another in our hearts and in our soul, in our minds, in our strength. If we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, folks, this command that God is saying to us, love one another. And as I mentioned earlier, all the other commandments, the Bible tells us that all the other commandments hinge on these two. Jesus says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, as we saw in Leviticus 19. And you may say, but why, what does that mean? Why do you mean that all the other commandments hinge on these two? Well, hear me out for a second. If we love each other, if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we love one another, we'll not steal from each other. If we love one another, we will not commit false accusations against each other. If we really love each other, we're not going to commit adultery. If we love each other, we're not going to commit any sinful acts against each other. Because that is how we show we love each other. And in the same light with God, if we truly, sincerely love God, we're not going to take his name in vain. We're not going to make false images. We're not going to violate any of his laws. And that is why it's so important. Christ knew what he's talking about when he said all the commandments hinge on these two. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. This is an old commandment. And it suggests that for his readers, they ought to be familiar with it. They should be familiar with it. It was a prominent feature in the teachings of Jesus Christ and in the Mosaic Law. Brotherly love is an essential part to the gospel. It's not something that is added on. And you wonder why so many look at the church and say, I want nothing to do with that church because if that's how they treat each other, How are they going to treat me as an outsider? How are they going to deal with me? How are they going to approach me if that's how they're dealing with each other? It's essential, folks. It's not the gospel, but it is an essential part to the gospel. John also emphasizes the newness of this, not again new in time. It's not something that he just conjured up out of thin air. It's something that they are familiar with, but there are facets to this that are new to and will be new to the believers that he is writing to. And there are three things that I want to highlight about the newness of kind in this love, uh, this command to love each other that John is talking about. It is new in its authority. Though the essence of this command can and is found in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, that we just reflected on in the Lord's table, gave this command new birth, clothed it with fresh sanction and enjoined it 
as the command for the new age which he inaugurated. What does this authoritative love look like? Jesus reminds us of this in John chapter 13, verse 34. Love one another, but he didn't stop there. How? Even as I loved you. Love, so it's not just you are commanded to love each other. No, we are commanded to love each other even as Jesus Christ loved yourselves. Love you and I. It's an authoritative love. But it's a love that comes with a new standard. Christ made the commandment anew by making who? Himself the model of this commandment. He didn't say, look at this person or look at the world and see how they exhibit love and go and do likewise. Jesus used himself as an example, giving it a fresh meaning. And we know the kind of love that Jesus Christ has for his church. What is that love? It's a sacrificial love. So this kind of love that John is commanding us to have for the brother is a sacrificial love, folks. We're told in Ephesians that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, meaning we as husbands are to love our wives sacrificially. But that goes right across the spectrum in Christianity, in Christendom. We are commanded to love each other just like Jesus Christ loves us, a sacrificial love. That's the love that is expected of us, folks. That's the love that we're expected to have for our brothers and sisters. Not just authoritative, but sacrificial love. And that, folks, that Westmount is a high standard to follow. That is a high standard to follow. To look at a brother and say, I love you to death. I love you to death and mean it. It's a high standard. So it's new in its authority, it's new in its standard, but new in its practice and application. Christ's life embodied and demonstrated this love in a manner that was not known before. In him, in Jesus Christ, Love burst upon the world as a new startling reality. Love was new in this case, in John's reader's case, because it was for them an entirely new way of living. So instead of going out living for self, pleasing self, satisfying self, loving on oneself, and using all of those self-words that if you look up self, you'll see self-esteem, self-worth, self-this, self-that. For these readers, they were oblivious to this because of the culture in which they live. It focused on self. Self first, everybody else after, if that. Instead of being selfish, This kind of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is sacrificial, it's authoritative, and it doesn't put self first. 
It doesn't put self first. This is the kind of love that the world, when they look at us as believers, when they look at the church, when they look at Westmount, they cannot but exclaim, man, they love each other. And that's a demonstration of the love they have in Jesus Christ and the love that Christ has for them. They love each other. They love each other. But why is this so significant that we exhibit this authoritative, selfless, sacrificial love for one another? John talks about it, the light versus the darkness. The change from darkness to light, that process is, has begun. The darkness is not entirely gone, but the true light is already shining Darkness, which is a symbolic of sin and ignorance and error. The absence of God in one's life. And that might be you this morning. But there's a solution for that, brothers, my friend. If this is you, it's Jesus Christ. But true light, the light of God's self-revelation, embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, the light that shines and overpowers the darkness. And the darkness has no power over the light. This light, this is a real, genuine light as opposed to counterfeit light. And it's a word, this true light, this real light that John is talking about, he uses it 23 times in his writings four times in this epistle, and only five other times it is used in the New Testament. And it marks a sharp contrast between the genuine light of Christ, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, as opposed to human speculation, as John is arguing here, the doctrine and the teaching of the Gnostics. That is fake. That is an imposter. It's not real. Folks, we love each other sacrificially, selflessly. We love each other authoritatively because we are children of light. And light has nothing to do with darkness. Hating our brothers and sisters in Christ is a sign, as John says, and we'll get to it, a sign that you are still living and walking in darkness. The ancient way of hating one another have passed away. And you are brought into the light of Jesus Christ. Living in hate is who you once were. Living in darkness is how you once lived. Hatred towards your brother is a sign that you are not in the light. You haven't experienced the light. You're still living in the darkness. Light reveals Verses 9 to 11, light reveals. If you say that conditional clause, John uses it quite often. In fact, he uses this for these individuals who are proclaiming one thing or professing one thing, but their conduct is contrary to what they're professing. For other time, he uses this. Profession and conduct. And he uses it to show the gross inconsistency with how people 
what people say and how people actually live. The gross inconsistency. You profess this thing, but you're living in complete contradiction to what you're professing. So if you say, if you claim, if you are making this assertion, brothers, if you are making this assertion to be in the light, if you are claiming to be a regenerate person, if you are claiming to be born again or born from above, if you want to use that terminology, if you are making this statement or professing that you have experienced the self-revelation of the true light that has come into the world, if you are making this statement and hate your brother, a state of life, this is not just, I dislike this thing that this individual did. This is you in your being. This is your character. This is your conduct. In other words, it's like the very air you breathe If you are this person, John says three things about you. As we look and continue to look at what it looks like to love our brothers in Christ. He says you exist in the darkness even now. Darkness is your moral and spiritual atmosphere, is what that means. That is your life. Although the true light has come into the world... You are still in darkness. You are united with darkness. You may have some kind of outward connection to Christianity or the Christian community, but you have never left the darkness. You are in darkness even now and always have been. That's what John is saying. That's not me. That's the text. That's what John says. If you exhibit an attitude of hatred, but you're professing Christ. John says, you're not in the light. You're not a part of the light. You're in darkness. You exist in darkness. You walk in darkness. All your movement is one of those that is of somebody groping around in the dark, trying to feel and have a sense of where you're going. There's no clear sense of vision. No straightness, of course. To be in the darkness, to exist in the darkness, connotes um, existence or character. So it's your character. But to walk in the darkness, that's your conduct. And John is saying your character is matching with your conduct here. Your character is living, existing in the darkness. Your conduct, you're continually walking in darkness, your habits, your traits, your attitude is that of someone who has no form of light, the true light within them. So you exist in the dark, you walk in the dark, and you are without any direction in your life. The brother hater is without a direction or goal. As we see in verse 11, hatred, folks, perverts a man's endeavor to make it... Hatred perverts a man's every endeavor that it is not possible, rather, for him to make conscious progress towards satisfying goal. His life is blocked out. 
He rushes headlong into moral and spiritual darkness, not knowing that he is headed for a precipice which will plunge him or her into outer darkness and eternal ruin. That's what hatred does. You spring forward, and I'm no pun intended, we'll see John, the example is used of Cain hating his brother, pure hatred towards his brother. Like a mole, like ponies that are used in the coal mines, like a fish at Mammoth Cave, people who dwell in the darkness, the dwellers of darkness, guess what? Eventually lose their ability and lose their appreciation of light. You love it so much. That's all you are and that's all you want. Because that's all you know. The penalty for living in darkness is not that one does not merely see John says it blinds you. It blinds you. You go blind. Hatred robs you. And for us as believers who are genuinely saved, but we harbor sin in our lives, hatred robs us of spiritual insight. It blinds us to the virtues of others. It blinds us to the faults that are in, that's in ourselves. That's why Jesus said, man, if you want to, and I like how the NIV puts it, if you want to take the speck of, this, of sawdust out of your brother's eye, remove the plank or remove the beam from yours first. Hatred robs us of that spiritual insight. Do, we don't realize that we are in moral decay because we're harboring this sinful desire in our hearts. The man from whom brotherly love is a pattern, however. So that is somebody who hates his brother just generically, if you want to use that term. But somebody who loves their brother and sisters in Christ is completely opposite. He, that person, abides in the light. That person dwells in the light. That person's domain, their character, their conduct, what they say is how they live. They exhibit light. They show they love their brother by abiding, remaining in the light, the true light. He lives, he remains in the light of the divine revelation. The NEB puts it this way, only the man who loves his brother dwells in the light. And because we are dwelling in the light, we are not providing any occasion for our brothers to stumble. And I would add, we are not providing any occasion for ourselves to stumble. We're not being stumbling blocks. We're being stepping stones. We're commanded to love one another. And I've always said this every time I preach and emphasize a command in Scripture. It's there because it's hard for us to do. If it was easy for us to love our brothers in Christ, John wouldn't be repeating it so many times here. And it's repeated not only in this epistle, but so many other New Testament passages. It is difficult because we are sinful beings. 
And that's why it's a command, and that's something that we have to work effortlessly every single day we get up to make sure that we live accordingly as children of light. So we love our your brothers. Love your brother, but why do we love our brothers in Christ? As we look at love's appeal, verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. The light of Christ shed abroad in our hearts should compel us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So John is making an appeal here, a love appeal. And he highlights few different groups, as you'll see in verses 12 to 14. But I want to emphasize what he's writing to them about. And he's writing in a, to encourage them, basically. And these verses are seemingly like a parenthetical addition to the text because it seemingly kind of disjoints the flow of the letter, though they're very, very important. But he, he writes to them and he writes these things and to these individuals as a way of encouragement to them, as an encouragement to remind, and a reminding them that they are victors. And this victory is assured Why do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because we have been forgiven. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Why do we love? In our effort to love and obey God and to foster a love for the brethren, we are reminded that we are forgiven people. We as Christians are forgiven. Your sins, your wrongdoings, you're missing the mark. You're overstepping the bound. You violating, deliberately violating God's law. They have been dismissed, canceled, pardoned, abandoned. These are some of the terms that are associated with forgiveness. They're canceled. This is a display of divine love. And the implication is if God can forgive you, a wretch, somebody who deserves death, somebody who deserves hell, we deserve hell. If he can forgive you, we should be able to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be able to. He forgives you. We love the brother unconditionally, selflessly, sacrificially, authoritatively because of Jesus Christ. You have been forgiven on account of his name or for his name's sake. You have been forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. 
You have been forgiven because God, in love and mercy, sent his son to that cruel cross to endure all that physical and emotional anguish that David reminds us of so that you can be forgiven. To demonstrate that he loves you that much. Do we deserve that love? Some might argue, of course I do. No, you don't. No, I don't. But God loves us so much. And he said, I'm going to show you how much I love you. Despite your transgression, despite your sin, despite how much you violate my law, I'm going to send my son for you and show you and demonstrate to you that love for his sake, for his glory, for his honor. And on that note, we ought to love one another. What a love. We love folks based on love's appeal because we are forgiven. We love because of what Jesus Christ did for us. We love because of our knowledge of him. You love God because God's love is on display in your life. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Christ did for you. You love the brother Westmount because you know who he is. You know him from the beginning. You know that he is love. You know that that love has been displayed. It's on complete display in your lives. By sending his son Jesus Christ to die as a sign of his complete hatred towards sin. You know him, Westmount. You know of his hesed love. That is his covenant keeping love. His love that we'll never have to worry that man. I wonder if there's a point in time when God is going to divorce me, when God is going to separate himself from me. Paul talks about it in one of my most, it's fascinating in my point of view, passages of scripture in the Bible. I can't wait till Jason gets there in Romans chapter 8, where he asks this profound question, what shall separate us from the love of God? And you could interject Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. We love because we know who he is. His covenant-keeping love. His long-suffering love. His love that said, man, they anger me just like the children of Israel because they just keep doing the same ridiculous nonsense over and over again. But I love them. His eternal love, his holy love. You know, Westmount, that you are called to emulate this very love that God has for you. We love the brothers because we are overcomers. You are an overcomer. John makes this statement in a very profound way. He asserts victory has already been achieved by his readers by using this term, overcomer. 
They've conquered. You are conquerors. The same text. In all these things, you are more than conquerors. How? Through your own strength, through your own mind. No, through him who loves you. We're overcomers because of Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 to 5, the Christian's faith is what guarantees and what gives us this victory over the evil one. And here in verse 14, John suggests that one factor in which his readers attain victory is by abiding, remaining in the word of God. That, folks, is how we're going to be focused on loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we submerse and immerse ourselves in the word of God. A permanent activity of our lives. That word that we treasure in our hearts. As Ramsey says, the man whose mind is stored with the right principles. And I'll add the godly principles. And true conviction is a clad of triple steel. That's who we are once we immerse and let the word of God permeate our entire being. In the verses immediately following, John will remind his readers that struggle is coming. In the world and with the world. But he He assures them here that we are well equipped for that struggle. We, you have been given divine strength. You have the word of God with you and in you. And you have the confidence that has already borne that victory against the enemy. And Westmount, we are going to need this. We're going to need this Assurance of victory. We're going to need to be solid people of the word of God. Radical in God's word because of our third and final point. So we love the brother. We love one another. We see love's appeal. But we're commanded not to love the world. Love not the world. Verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing along, away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're commanded to love each other. We're told how we ought to love each other, sacrificially, authoritatively, selflessly. We love based on what Christ did for us, how, who Christ is to us. But now John switches it And reminds us that there's something that we ought not to love. The love that we should hate, if you want to put it that way. Love not the world. The world system 
that is organized against the Lord and against the things of God, the grotesque evil that we see all around us, the system that is designed to be godless and is godless to the core, that wants nothing to do with God. And the more we look at the, more, the world, the more we realize the world is moving swiftly away from anything that is godly, anything that has godliness in it. In fact, we, in many cases now, are the ones who are in the wrong. We are the ones who are immoral. We are the ones who are the haters of mankind. Why? Because we are not bowing down. We're not being conformed. We're not being molded into the world system. We're not being molded into how the world wants us to love everybody because everything is love and God is love. And that's the only attribute of God that we see from Genesis to Revelation. Love, love, love. That is the world in which we live, folks. And we don't love this because of the purpose. What is the world system designed to do? Well, we see it out there. It's to pull us away from godliness and morality. And society doesn't realize that when we are the ones who dictate what morality is, that's a very dangerous path and that's where we are. Because we get to dictate what morality is, what morality looks like. The world system has one purpose, one goal. And that is to draw people away from godliness. That is to draw people away from God and the things that are God's. To draw people away and even believers from the plans and the purpose of God. So we don't love that. We don't love the world system. We don't love the world because of the purpose. We don't love the world because of the prince, the one who is in total opposition to God, the devil himself. 1 John 5 verse 9 says, We are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air who is now working in the children of disobedience, the ruler of darkness in high places. And in St. John chapter 12, he is called the prince or the ruler of this world. He is the organizer and the motivating force behind the world system. And that's why Paul reminds us in Ephesians that we are to gear up because we're not wrestling flesh and blood. We're wrestling against higher powers. We don't love the world because of him. We don't love the world because of people. We love the people, but we don't love the things of the people. Because the devil uses individuals just like, and I'll argue, the Holy Spirit uses believers to accomplish God's will and God's purpose. And you might say, and you might be here and you're not saving and saying, but are you telling me that I'm susceptible to being used by the devil? Yes, I am saying that. Because the Bible says that. 
Ephesians reminds us that we were once, how did we once walk? How did we once conduct our lives? And that is why we can't live a life of hatred towards one another, because that was once upon a time. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, to go back to that verse. That's how we lived. Children as of disobedience. And Jesus was bold as he always was to call many out and say, you are of your father, the devil. We don't love the world because of what its purpose is, who its prince is, and because of the people and how they conduct their lives. Before Christ, you, if you're here and you're not saved, before Jesus Christ, you walked according to how the world wants you to walk. The way the world is forcing Christians to live, that's how you are walking. You followed your master, the prince of the power of the air. You hate Jesus Christ. And you hate those who follow Jesus Christ. But believers, Westmount, we are in it, but we're not of it. I know you've heard that term before. We're in it, but we're not of it. This is the world that we live in. This is the world system that we live in. And three things that John says that the world used to capture people and us as believers, the lust of the flesh, Dealing with our doing. We just do things that are godless. We do things that aren't godly. The flesh might not be the body per se, but it operates through the impulses of our body. And when God made us, he made us, with certain impulses, and those are good, because he said that in Genesis, and it was good. So he made us with the impulse to get hungry, and thirst, and the desire to rest after we're tired. He made us with the impulse as sexual beings. But this is what the lust of the flesh does to these impulses. So instead of being content, We become gluttons. And instead of valuing and and regarding sexual intercourse as the way God designed it in the context of marriage, we go to debauchery and sexual immorality. And the list can go on and on and on. We misuse the things that God has given us, these God-given desires and transform them into godlessness. John talks about the lust of the eyes. Have to do with envy, strife. Have you ever thought that the eye has the appetite, or as thought of the eye as the appetite of the body? Have you ever heard the expression, feast your eyes on this? 
God made things beautiful for us to look at. He created this world. But as in the case with the flesh, the eye sees and it desires because it can't have, so it envies. And of course, we have the pride of life, the bragger, the boaster. John concludes this argument in verse 17. And the world is passing along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. What is he saying there? Why does he end on that note? Love not the world, neither thing is the world. And here's how loving the world looks. You lust, you, you have pride, and you use your eyes to see things that you shouldn't desire, and you want it. John is making a profound statement that these things that we go after and we love and lust after are fleeting. They're passing away. But there is one thing that is permanent, one thing that will never fade away when we abide in God. That is forever. And that is an encapsulation of all that he's been saying. Folks, we, can't lo- we have to love our brothers because the world doesn't... Does, do you, you look at the world, do the world love believers? Some people have an admiration or respect. They don't love us. In fact, there's a growing hatred, as I mentioned, towards Christianity here in the West. And we have to brace ourselves because the thing that most of us fear most is coming, persecution. I forget his name, but he went to protest a drag queen rally. That's the world. That's the world in which we live. That's what they want us to love. And he's still in jail, a pastor in Calgary. We who are children of the light ought to exhibit that light to the world. And it has to start from the inside out. We can't go out there and put on a stained glass masquerade and show the world that we love them so dearly. But when we come into this fashion, we can't stand seeing certain people or can't stand sitting next to certain individual or have this bitterness in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, it's a command that is embedded in Scripture, multiple parts of Scripture, because it is not easy. It's difficult. But remember this, we are overcomers. John himself will say this further, greater is he that that is in us than he that is in the world. Folks, we have the victory we can love and we are exhibiting that love for one another because of Jesus Christ. And that love that has been shed abroad, as Paul puts in Romans, in our hearts. Friend, if you're here, you're not saved. You have no clue what I'm talking about. What this brotherly love our loving one another is and what it looks like. You don't even have a clue what the love of God looks like in your life, but you can. God sent his son, his one and only son, spared not his only son, 
so that you can be saved. And today is your opportunity. If you're here and that's you, surrender your lives to him. Believers, I don't know your hearts. I see your faces. I talk to you occasionally. Only God knows your heart. I don't know what's in there. In fact, you don't even realize how depraved your own heart is. I don't. Jeremiah tells us that. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So I don't know how you feel towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope it's the love that John describes as not causing them to stumble. The love that shows that you're abiding in the word of God. And if that's you, bravo, keep up the good work and keep on that path. But if there's variation, folks, take it to the cross. Surrender that to the cross. And let the love of God shine so bright in this church and in this community and in this city and across Canada. That even though the world wants to mold us and transforms us into what they want, they can't but say, man, they love each other. For Christ's sake. God, we thank you for this reminder. And they're hard truths, Lord. But they, we need reminder so often. And may we live a life that exhibits love for one another, that sacrificial, selfless, authoritative love that you have commanded us to have for each other. For Christ's sake, amen.